Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed. And if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And today is the seventh day of Sonnet Week, closing out strong Poetry Month 2021. It is Sonnet time one more time, and we are getting wild with it. And there's the fanfare, just like in episode one, going out the way we came in, but with so much more knowledge about the history of the sonnet. Ah! <laughs> that was a little funky fanfare. That was, yeah, it got real funky because now we're not we're not on the cusp of the Renaissance anymore. We are deeply embedded in the present day, and you know what? Much like music has, we're about to get funky. <laughs> For, you know, from the invention of music until about 1973, very low funk factor. Can you imagine? Music up until that point was like a bucket of flour. And then in 1973, (laughs) boom, funky sourdough. Wow. The leavening agent, the natural leavening agent of that good, good bass line. Getting funky. Can you think about how many people in mm. all time lived and then died before the funk? Oh my God. Most of them. Well, we've got a funktastic episode for you today. <laughs> Real funky, fresh, good stuff. Um, just a lot of contemporary sonnets that are getting pretty wild with the form because. As we have discussed, and you know, we did a whole week on haiku, and the haiku's also been around, it's been around a really, really long time, and I feel like we focused on it a little bit less, which is maybe our fault, but also I think the simplicity of the haiku form makes it seem more intuitive that it would survive in a similar way like through the years, whereas 14 lines, mostly rhyming, different specific rhyme schemes, iambic pentameter... For something with that many different components to make its way through time and across continents is like, 
Whoa, what? Daring poetic innovators. They're getting in there. They're flavoring it with the funk, that good funk of literary innovation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, wow. Okay. The problem, dear listener, is there are so many, too many credible, wild, sonnet and sonnet-like poems out there. So we have to pick just a few. And I had to go with this one because I love it. And it formally blows my mind every time. We've talked about one of her poems before. This one's by Nicole Seeley. We talked about her poem, Medical History. And it comes from the same book, Ordinary Beast. This one is called Candelabra with Heads, which is an ekphrastic poem about a sculpture also called Candelabra with Heads. And it's this kind of big wooden candelabra-like thing with these sort of lumpen clay uh, shapes um, that are the heads. Anyway, helpful. And it is a sonnet. And then it is a sonnet again, but the lines of the first sonnet happen again. And then there's another line. This is Candelabra with Heads by Nicole Seeley. Had I not brought with me my mind as it has been made, this thing, this brood of mannequins, cocooned and mountained on a wooden scaffold, might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping, might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand, might be a family tree with eight pictured frames. Such treaties occur in the brain. Can you see them hanging? Their shadow is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep fat the color of yolk. Can you smell them burning? Their perfume climbing as wisteria would a trellis. As wisteria would a trellis. Burning? Their perfume climbing fat the color of yolk. Can you smell them? Skin shrinks and splits. The bodies weep is a crowd stripping the tree of souvenirs. Can you see them hanging? Their shadow frames. Such treaties occur in the brain. Might be a family tree with eight pictured. Might be eight fleshy fingers on one hand. Might be eight infants swaddled and sleeping. And mounted on a wooden scaffold, this brood of mannequins, cocooned as it has been made, this thing. Had I not brought with me my mind, who can see this and not see lynchings? 
Yikes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. What, double sonnet plus one? Yep. Um, is, uh, what a masterful formal experience of a poem jeez yeah absolutely and fascinatingly there's a a poem that's she wrote in response to the responses to this poem um which is will link to um but it's very interesting um but I, I, I wanted to, to kind of, I don't know, I just am like blown away by this poem, but it's, you know, it, it takes this sculpture, it kind of does that ekphrastic work of describing it and then sort of going beyond that. But then, I don't know, this like, the effect of it happening again in reverse is so disconcerting. The ways in which the sentences work sometimes work less but still evoke something in other times like the way that when the might be a family tree might be a fleshy fingers comes back the second time it's like you know once you get the can you see them hanging the first time can you smell them burning and you get the sort of you know and and this the 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 first sonnet <laughs> or the first part of the poem has a you know a very petrarchan volta um it's like an eight line stanza that's like you know and it, it starts it has the tension in it you know had i not brought with me my mind as it has been made it's like were i not me um you know and and somewhat implied is like you know were i not um a black american woman like with also like my, you know, what I know and what I've experienced and all that, like maybe I could read this fairly abstract sculpture any kind of way or whatever. Um, and that's kind of the first eight line stanza. And then the turn happens, like, can you see them hanging um, to like what the speaker really sees like and viscerally sort of encounters when she encounters the the artwork um but then i don't know one effect i feel is like especially when i haven't you know like when i first encountered the poem i hadn't seen the artwork so i'm like doubly sort of removed from what my impression would be, but I'm like, okay, maybe it is a infants or like, maybe it could be fleshy fingers or whatever. But then, and so when you first encounter those lines, you're like, okay, sure. But then you get that like intense second stanza, then you get it again in reverse. And it's like, ooh. Um, and then you get, you know, might be a family tree, might be eight fleshy fingers. And it's like, mm, I don't think so. Um, and it it's this strange kind of like re-encounter of, of what it could be, but, but 
but because you've read the rest of the poem and like that kind of encounter through time of of going through it you're it's it's like weird it like feels so wrong to think of it as possibly eight infants swaddled and sleeping the second time even though the first time you're like oh maybe that's what the artwork could be representing or something and then the second time you're like jesus christ if you didn't say it could be eight infants like you're yeah i don't know i just like it's this it's this amazing thing that has the you know it retains one of the big innovations like what monica yoon calls that that hangover effect where you have the eight and then the six and that disproportionate turn but then it like doubles and inverts it in a way that goes <laughs> just freaks me out uh in an amazing way definitely yeah. i think i mean that that last line the way that the poem flows through the double sonnet mirror form makes the way that that last line falls feel inevitable when you go back and read the poem again it makes that reading of the work of art feel like the reading in a way that I think is really interesting because it turns the first sonnet's worth of descriptions that do read more like a, and just a general ekphrastic poem about a work of art. It makes that feel like not misdirection on the part of the speaker, but if you go up to this work of art and that's your experience of it, it makes you feel the incompleteness of that. And and part of the genius of this is that it preserves the fact that two people could be looking at exactly the same work of art and have two wildly different readings. The first reading is the second reading. It's all there in the poem and it's all there in the work of art. You just need the eyes to see. And the poem takes you through the process of seeing that literally the same words <laughs> it's like it's yeah i mean it's just incredible the use of time and such a deep understanding of the way a reader experiences a poem and a painting creating an experience through time of that with this it's a great way to deploy the sonnet and 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 put in that not only to make it 28 lines but to make it 29 <laughs> all right that's pretty good that's yep that's incredible yep you know it's interesting because i i love the response poem too it is about the inclusion of the last line um and some thought that it should not be included apparently but it, it's kind of a poetic response to it and do you think i could just read it yeah totally let's hear it okay um okay <laughs> it's called in defense of candelabra with heads and it's it's great because that it, it it appears in the near the end of the book and the first one is pretty near the beginning uh but anyway in Defense of Candelabra with Heads by Nicole Seeley. If you've read the Candelabra with Heads that appears in this collection and the one in The Animal, thank you. The original, the one included here, is an example, I'm told, of a poem 
that can speak for itself, but loses faith in its ability to do so by ending with a thesis question. Yeats said a poem should click shut like a well-made box. I don't disagree. I ask who can see this and not see lynchings, not because I don't trust you, dear reader, or my own abilities. I ask because the imagination would have us believe, much like faith, faith the original candelabra lacks in things unseen. You should know that human limbs burn like branches and branches like human limbs. Only after man began hanging man from trees, then setting him on fire, which would jump from limb to branch like a bastard species of bird, did we come to know such things. A hundred years from now, October 9th, 2116, 818 p.m., when all but the lucky are good and dead, may someone happen upon the question in question. May that lucky someone be black and so far removed from the verb lynch that she be dumbfounded by its meaning. May she then call up Hirschhorn's candelabra with heads. May her imagination, not her memory, run wild. Wow. Yeah. It's a good but, response. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good response. I mean, that's a 29-line sonnet experiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there are many other ways that like kind of expanded sonnets can work. There is probably most classically, and we haven't talked too much about this, but there are crowns of sonnets, and that is 14 sonnets. The last line of one sonnet becomes the first line of the next, which is sort of what's happening here in the uh, Nicole Seeley poem, even though it's the same lines in reverse order, the last becomes the first. Um, and classically in the 14, then the last line of the last poem is the first line of the first poem so that it creates a nice little circle of sonnets, very proper. Um, and there are many <laughs> poets who have done a lot of interesting crowns. Yeah, no, there's, there's, a we'll, we'll link to some great ones. There's a, there's a wonderful one by Marilyn Nelson, um, that's called a wreath for Emmett Till. And it's actually, I think it's a, um, a heroic crown, which not only is the crown, the 14 sonnets, but then there's a 15th, which has all of the first lines of every sonnet appear in a 15th sonnet, like one stacked after the next. And then she does something even more like where the heroic crown, the first, um, the first letters of the lines, like in a, a spell its own message acrostically. 
<laughs> wow. Um, so that one's pretty amazing. Um, Denez Smith has a great crown of sonnets in their book, uh, Don't Call Us Dead. Um, Natasha Trethaway has a wonderful partial crown in her book, Native Guard. Um, and there's many others. Um, I wrote a, a heroic crown in college, but it's not very good. Let me tell you though, the one thing I learned, which was not how to write a good sonnet because I didn't manage to do that. It is the fun and the challenge is it's like a big puzzle because you have, so you have your sonnet and then, you know, okay, the lines have to make sense for a sonnet. That's just like writing sentences, sure. Then you have your crown. So then that one last line has to make sense in a totally different context. So you have to, and you know, you can, people sometimes like change the punctuation or a couple sounds here and there or whatever. But then if you try the heroic with the 15th, then all of those have to somehow make sense together. Uh, which I did not do uh, well. <laughs> it's it just, hard. It's so hard. It, it's really hard. Yes. Yeah. So my, my teacher said it was, it's like writing 45 sonnets instead of 15. <laughs> and there's just so many different pieces that you have to keep moving and yeah. like be doing it simultaneously. It's wild. Yeah. Um, and it is why really inventive writers, I think, are probably drawn to it because it has that many more places to just play with language. And if you're up for the challenge and you've got the time or you have a, a guiding idea, I'm sure it's a really rewarding writing experience to figure out how those pieces fit together. It's a very particular kind of writing to do, very, you know, technical, um, mm -hmm. which can be really a fun challenge, uh, an interesting thing to do. Uh, similar to that on like major technical challenge using the form of the sonnet and not necessarily breaking the rules to like do stuff, but adding other rules and constraints for yourself. Um, anagrammatical sonnets, which I think can take different forms because obviously there's different ways to do anagrams, but um, Paisley Rechtal, who we mentioned on a previous episode, uh, she happens to have written a few that were her way of paying homage to Mae West, who in addition to being a star of the silver screen was very well known for her uh, turns of phrase. Here's, here's some of that to hear. And I'm gonna leave with two funny poems, hopefully. Um, I wrote a series of poems from Mae West, um, a series of sonnets. And this looks like a crowd that actually knows who Mae West is. So, uh, no, no, I'm calling you well-read. I'm calling you well-watched TV watchers. I'm, yeah, people with cable. Um, so, one of the things that, um, I really liked about her is that she had this very crazy sense of humor, lots and lots of verbal play. And to imitate it, I decided to write either sonnets that could only be written from words that were composed of letters of a particular one-liner that opened the poem or closed it, or were actually anagrammatical sonnets. So I'm going to read 
Um, Jericho, sorry, could you roll this one more time? Two anagrammatical sonnets, and it will end with the actual line that I am taking from her, and you will get to hear my great Mae West impersonation. Mae West, advice. Ban tobacco. Do bacon, a bed, be delectable, collectible, a decent debacle. Decolleté, don't conceal, acne, do. Be bold and be toned, an octane blonde co-ed. Be colonel, not cadet, concede nada to doc. Date a cad and canoodle, be a clat on a cot. Don't lean on a deacon, be adult, a clone. Don't bet on an Eden, don't loot, don't loan. Be bell and ball too, a deb cocoa labeled. Be ocelot, be lancet, be candle and cabled. Cancelled, debated, booed at to boot. Elect to be tall, don't tan, eat local. Be oded, caboodle, be beacon and lect. Oh, don't be a noodle, be cool and collect. <laughs> it gets creepier. Okay. This is the last one I'll read. Self-portrait as Mae West one-liner. And again, it's an anagrammatical sonnet. It ends with the, the line. I'm no moaning bluet, mountable linnet, mumbling nun. I'm tangible. I'm gin. Able to molt in toto to limb. I'm blame and angle. I'm lumbago, an oblate mug, god notable, not glum. I'm a taboo tuba mogul. I'm motile. I'm nimble. No gab on we, no bagel bun boat. I'm one big megaton bolt able to bail men out. Gluten I am, male bong unit. I'm a genial bum, mental obi genital montage. I'm agent limbo, my blunt bio, an amulet, an enigma. Omit Alan, omit bingo. Alien mangle, I'm glib lingo. Untangle me, Tangelo. Mm, but I'm no angel. There you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. So there's <laughs> a lot of room to play with that. Uh, I don't have anything to say about that except that was great. <laughs> and I love listening to it and um, eat local. Yeah. Yeah. Eat local. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hear more of Paisley Rectal's reading from the Unamuno Author Festival over on Poetry Spoken Here. So yeah, um, obviously like using the sonnet and adding different elements to the form, not just kind of breaking the mold by tearing down what is classically in place, like removing the Volta or adding lines or removing rhyme schemes or whatever. Also like putting more strictures or more ideas in place can also be really rewarding, which I think is also, and you heard him briefly called out to in that reading uh jericho brown is something that he has done in creating the form of the duplex which i encourage you all to go look up and and read his duplexes because they really are quite incredible um, but in an interview with the rumpus which is actually titled gutting the sonnet a conversation with jericho brown um he references a little bit of where the inspiration for creating a form came from and he says this, I, I sort of had been thinking about gutting a sonnet. We go 14 lines to get to what will be in that 14th line, a repeated line. I kept thinking, why can't I just skip all the lines in between? What would that make? In my head, I kept thinking that it would be a gazal. 
a ghazal is couplets that seem disparate because there's something in between them that is not said. So first, it started with me asking, how do I gut the sonic crown? But I guess the question before that is, why do I want to gut the sonic crown? I feel completely in love with and oppressed by the sonnet. Which gets to a lot of what we were talking about earlier in terms of the form being both this incredible form that has tons of history and it has tons of work in it that's really wonderful, but it can feel oppressive to have those rules in place. And so both wanting to go beyond them, but also understanding why one would want to go beyond them is a really interesting combination that I think is probably, I don't know, it's probably a very fruitful intellectual place to be in because you're doing some like very careful kind of introspective work on what you want to say and how and why and taking that starting point of I am in love with and oppressed by the sonnet where do I go from there and then creating another form I feel like that is potentially an echo of way back in our very first episode when Giacomo de Lentini was creating the sonnet itself he was looking around at the forms that were present and wanted to do something else and so ended up crafting what we now know as the sonnet i feel like that is exactly what jericho brown is describing here is that process of creation and yeah very much directly in that tradition of looking around at what is currently available using parts of it that is what delantini was doing looking at the sort of folk styles that were around and other types of poem forms that were popular and then creating something not entirely removed from it, but different, unique, and new. And that's what the duplex is. It's not a sonnet, but you can see the elements of sonnets that reside within it, um, in addition to other forms like the gazelle, as he as he points out. Um, so I was just really struck by that, particularly as we've been considering the history of the form and the creation of the form all that time ago, it felt like there was an echo there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really fascinating, but no, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's, you know, the, any form in a sonnet, you know, it's, it's like, um, I mean, I don't know, they, maybe this is just so simple as to be like meaningless, but it's just like there are feelings, experiences, encounters, ideas, mixes of all of those things that you want to express or engage with, right? And there's different shapes and forms and genres, you know, that are available to you um, to do so. And so the sonnet has proved to be like a good container for many people's, you know, feelings and ideas and um, experiences you know, across time and space. Um, and it's also proved flexible in that you can kind of mess around with it and it it still 
you know, <laughs> rewrites itself or like, you know, gets back up. Um, but at the same time, it is, you know, it's a, it's a particular shape. It can't do some things. It can't do other things. Um, it's not a villanelle. It's not a pantoum. It's not a TV show. You know, it's not funk. Definitely um, not funk. Definitely not funk. Um, so it, it makes, yeah, it's really fascinating to hear that Jericho Brown was, was kind of, there was something in the sonnet that was still resonant or, or uh, open or like well containing <laughs> or something. I don't know what that means, but uh, to him, uh, but ultimately, you know, for what he wanted to do in this, these particular duplex poems, like it wasn't the proper form. And so he had to create a new form. And that's like, that's really tough, profoundly cool work. The other nice thing about the sonnet and just about working with forms is like, you know, sometimes when you start writing, you're like, oh, like it's just me in the blank page. And I, it's like, where do I begin? Cause there's the possibilities are endless or whatever. And sometimes that constraint can actually of the sonnet can make the writing not overwhelming. And like, you know, you're like, okay, well, I know it's going to be, it's got to begin and end in 14 lines or whatever. So, um, you know, things like that, but then to sort of set out and, and make something new that sort of the cool thing, it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to like write a totally original piece. That's amazing. But then also to create a form that then other people can like use is very interesting because then it's like, not only have I found a new container for like this really unique thing that I was trying to express before, but couldn't until I found this new form called the duplex, but also I've, I've made it and now it's there. And like other people, if it's like a, if it's like a, a resonant form, like the sonnet has been, other people can take it and do what they want with it, you know? And that's like, wow. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty amazing yeah and there's a lot of other amazing sonnets we do not have time to talk about we're going to link to a bunch of them and tweet about them and all that stuff but yeah this has been uh sonnet week national poetry month 2021 this has been our our highly subjective and you know we've covered a lot of the main elements of the sonnet but we know that we've also left a lot of stuff out we barely talked about spencerian sonnets they also exist they're out there it's another rhyme scheme you can look it up google's not edmund broken. spencer edmund yeah. spencer there's so much more to talk about however time is incredibly short um but we would love to know what you thought 
What are some of your favorite sonnets? But also, is there another form you want us to cover? Is there something else we should do for the last week of Poetry Month 2022? We're always open to suggestions, and there's a lot of different ways to get in touch with us. You'll hear about them in just a minute. And, uh, you know, we hope that you've enjoyed Sonnet Week. And closing out National Poetry Month 2021. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Roster Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time. <laughs>